Hi friends, welcome back to the Modern Wisdom Podcast. My guest today is a fellow podcaster. Nat Eliason is the host of Made You Think and also the man behind growthmachine.com. I had a few things that I wanted to speak to Nat about today. His ability to retain the information that he reads in books through a progressive summarization method is pretty impressive and he takes us through that today. He also explains how he's managed to essentially monetize his passion by selling access to his own Evernote. We talk about growthmachine.com and how organic versus paid strategies in the online world are changing and developing over time. And finally, he gives us his five favorite books that you probably haven't read. So stay until the end and find out exactly what Nat thinks you should sink your teeth into as your next read, which you might not have seen on the New York Times bestsellers list. Please welcome the wise and wonderful Nat Eliason. I'm joined by the host of the Made You Think podcast and the man behind growthmachine.com, Nat Eliason. Nat, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. Excited to be here. So I am a big fan of your podcast. Recently had Robert Green on talking about laws of human nature and your guys' summary of that uh, was a, a, big, a big help in prepping. It's a big old book and what you guys do on the podcast really really helps to condense stuff down. Would you be able to explain sort of what the Made You Think podcast is and and what the uh, concept behind it is? Yeah, uh, Made You Think started uh, actually out of another podcast. So I had <clears throat> had a podcast before called Nat Chat where I Such was... Such a good name. <laughs> yeah, great name, right? <laughs> yeah, I love it. I, uh, I was interviewing people who had come out of college and done something sort of like atypical. Uh, and by atypical, I meant, you know, not gone to do what I saw a lot of other people from top tier schools doing, like working in finance or consulting or going to work at one of the fan companies, things like that. So talking mm-hmm. to a lot of young people who either went entrepreneurial routes or were doing like contract work or ended up being an early member in an agency, things like that, that you don't hear about as much when you are going to some of these schools and trying to get more of those stories out there for people who felt like, oh, those typical career paths just aren't as exciting to me. So I uh, did them, did, was doing that chat for a while and interviewed one of my friends, Neil, who ended up doing like a whole bunch of different things right out of college and eventually became sort of like a internal innovation consultant for Estee Lauder uh, and then went on to start his own uh, like beer company helping people create like custom brews taking advantage of the uh, unused capacity of breweries around the country Um, and, and we had a really good like three hour long episode just talking about everything and how he ended up doing what he was doing and people really really liked how in depth we went and how much stuff we talked about and then we said or we thought it might be fun to do a second episode on a book that we both really liked uh anti-fragile by nasim taleb and 
So we just got back on and talked about Antifragile for two hours or so. <laughs> and it ended up being, I think, the most popular episode of NatChat ever. Uh, and we kind of saw that and we're like, well, this is clearly a sign that there's something interesting here. And I was getting a little tired of doing the interview style uh, of episodes. So we said, well, why don't we just try doing a podcast based on reading, you know, tougher books and then talking about the key takeaways from them. And so we did that and started putting out episodes about books that we were both reading and enjoying. And, uh, yeah, that was sort of the inception for, for made you think. Uh, yeah, I, I have to say that you're right. And one of the things that you touched on in the Robert Green uh, podcast, you guys said that flipping over to the interview style, or maybe it was one of your other recent ones, flipping over to the interview style of podcast was something that you think there's enough people doing that in that space already. And I have to agree. Um, I have a bunch of co-hosts that I do this show with. The listeners will be familiar with Johnny and Yusuf. And the episodes that I do with those guys by far outstrip the engagement that the ones that I do, even if I get New York Times bestselling author on. And I think it's something to do with the fact that um, when you just have normal candor between a group of friends, a big proportion of people who are into podcasting just like that kind of voyeuristic fly-on-the-wall type stuff. But you're right, you you guys have tackled some pretty difficult books. Didn't you tackle... Um, there's a episode I've got queued up. Isn't it like some ridiculously difficult sci-fi book? Uh, Infinite Jest. Infinite yeah, Jest. It's, yeah. It's uh, it's I guess it's a sci-fi book technically, but yeah, it's a super super weird like thousand-page book with two hundred pages of end notes. Um, like most of it makes very little sense without <laughs> reading it very carefully. It's it's not quite like Ulysses level of confusing, but it's up there. So that was that was a journey getting through that book. Uh, that episode came together surprisingly well. I wasn't sure exactly what we were going to talk about. I don't think either of us were because like nothing really. There's no like huge plot driving the book. It's it's really a character novel, um, but. It was fun to work through it. And honestly, I think the satisfaction is in having finished it, not necessarily in <laughs> all of the time spent reading it. So it's a good one. Yeah, I guess that's probably the same as doing a marathon. Like there's big bits of a marathon that you're probably not going to enjoy. But once you get across the finish line, it feels pretty good. Yeah, exactly. Everyone wants to have run a marathon, not to run a marathon. Yeah, perfectly correct. So one of the first things that I wanted to ask you about was your approach to progressive summarization. That's what Tiago Forte would refer to it as, or I guess in more common parlance, it would be how do you remember the things that you read? Um, I know that you have a, a an Evernote system and you also have like a a membership sort of, uh, back end to your Evernote, which I think is really super interesting. So, yeah, if you could talk to us about your process for remembering the things you read and then also explain to the listeners about your Evernote, uh, your little Evernote hustle you've got going on. Yeah, and to be clear, you know, I didn't come up with this system at all. This is Tiago's invention. And if anyone isn't familiar with Tiago's work, you should check it out. It's at uh, Forte Labs, like F-O-R-T-E Labs.co, C-O. Uh, and his blog is Praxis.ForteLabs.co. And he's really, I think, one of the only writers in the productivity space who's worth reading. 
uh, pretty much all productivity writing is just like the same trash being rehashed a dozen different ways. His is actually novel and interesting and ultimately much more useful than most everything else out there. So That's a big accolade uh, for, for Tiago. Yeah, no, I, and I, I stand by that. I, I really, him and Chris Sparks are the only two people who I read in the productivity space anymore. Um, everybody else is not really contributing anything new or useful to the discussion, but they're doing good work. So, and Chris is at uh, theforcingfunction.com. Interesting. So, yeah, we had. A, I actually had Tiago on about three weeks ago. We had him on talking about, oh, wonderful. Talking about the digital productivity pyramid. Um, but the final question, I asked him the question about progressive summarization, and that was as his um, buzzer went that he had to go on to something else. So I thought, oh. let's let's see what happens if we get into the trenches with someone who does progressive summarization at a pretty pretty high velocity, and and that's that's you. Yeah, yeah. So I I use it as a way to consolidate and make my book notes in particular more useful. So whenever I'm reading uh, a book, I'll pretty much always read it on my Kindle and I'll be highlighting stuff as I'm going. So I'm just using the Kindle highlight feature. Anything that looks kind of interesting, uh, I'll, I'll highlight so that I can pull it out later. And I'll sometimes highlight other things, mostly just as goal or signposts for context when I'm looking back at my notes later. I read most nonfiction now with the notes that I'm going to take from them in mind. Uh, so it's very like strategic consumption to do it in a way where I know I'm going to get good notes out of the book that I can use later. So I'm going through and I'm highlighting the things that are interesting and stand out. And then when uh, I'm done, I use a tool called Readwise, uh, readwise.com that can take your Kindle uh, highlights and then seamlessly export them to Evernote with all of the formatting and stuff coming out really cleanly. So it's just you know, highlight, 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 highlight in new lines with no like weirdness that you get the other apps. So uh, I'll take it all into Evernote. And then I've just got this kind of like disorganized list of my highlights from the book. And then I'll go back through and first I'll like add whatever other sign posting I need. So whether that's section titles or chapters or uh, however else I'm going to structure the notes so that I can skim through them easier later. And then the progressive summarization comes in, which is going through and adding uh, anywhere from three to four layers, I guess two to four layers of annotation to the note in order to make the highlights from the book even more useful. So uh, in its base form, it's just your highlights. It's just the text that you pulled out of the book. Uh, Layer two is going through and bolding the parts of those highlights that is uh, most important. So you might have, you know, part of each highlight that's most important. You might have some highlights that are less important. This is usually the phase where I'll go through and delete some of them too. Yeah. Like maybe I highlighted an idea early on in the book and then later on that idea got explained better. And so I'll keep the highlight from later and delete the one from earlier. So I do a bit of cleanup there. Uh, and then once you've gone through and bolded all the important parts, then you go through again and you highlight the most important parts of the bolded parts. <laughs> so you're only reading the text that you've bolded. You're ignoring all the unbolded text and you're going through the bolded text and you're saying, okay, of this, what is the most important? And you're highlighting that uh, so that now when you skim through your note, you've got these highlighted callouts of the most important parts of the book that you can easily jump to uh, to pull out those ideas. 
And then there's another layer that I don't always do. I think Tiago does a better job of it. Uh, but if you keep coming back to a certain book or a certain note, you can create like a little executive summary at the top of the note. And so that's just like maybe three to five bullet points of the most important ideas from the book or from the article, whatever you took the notes from, so that you can really quickly redigest what uh, you took away from that piece when you're coming back to it. Um, now, I do this differently from Tiago, where Tiago, his method or the way he does it is like as a book or an article gets resurfaced. So as he needs something for an article he's writing or it comes up in a conversation, then he might bring up the note. And then each time he brings it up, he does another layer. So he doesn't immediately go through and bold things. He waits. And then when it comes up again, he'll go through and bold it. Or at least this is how I remember how he said he did it. Got you. Uh, what I do is I do it I do it all up front after I've read the book because, as you alluded to, I have a product on my site where I sell these notes. So I've been doing it, uh, and I was doing it in a rougher form before I discovered Tiago's work where I was just pulling out my highlights and organizing them and publishing them as pages on my blog, similar to what Derek Sivers does, and then... Uh, as I, you know, got into Tiago's work and learned about progressive summarization, I started doing that to all my book notes. So now I've got, I think like 240 books in there <laughs> and they're all annotated and highlighted and everything. So it makes it really quick for me to go back through and pull out, uh, the, the most important takeaways. Yeah. 241 books. So, uh, and then I just sell that on my blog and you pay $50 and you get lifetime access to all current and future notes, uh, that go in there, which is pretty useful if you're trying to decide, you know, what book to read or if you know you read a book, but you didn't take any notes and you want to go back and pull out some important stuff. I've got a lot of like the popular ones in there, uh, including Laws of Human Nature, of course, and yes. Anti-Fragile and all of the ones on on Made You Think. So, yeah, that's sort of how that all started. And then the other fun thing with it is since I publish a less annotated version of these notes on my site, my site actually ranks in Google for the titles of a lot of these books. Or if you search a lot of these books plus summary or plus highlights, you'll usually find my blog on the first page. So if you Google like 48 laws of power summary, I think I'm like in the top three that come up for that. And that, you know, bring a lot of traffic to the site and then people discover my other articles or they discover the paid version of the notes. So it's a nice little like bit of, side passive income for sure yeah it's um it's cool that you've taken something there's this sort of evolution of ideas or evolution of process that we've got here where previously you were taking notes then you refined your process of taking notes through tiago's course then that became that formed the foundation for you to then build the podcast off because i'm going to guess when you're recording made you think all that you really do is go back through your notes for the particular book that you're talking about and move through yep. there and you've got that as your reference and then you've created a, a income stream off that also you're driving traffic off that it's like the ultimate evergreen content i suppose yeah yeah in many ways and then obviously when i'm uh doing my like other articles that might reference stuff in one of these books i've got all of my highlights right there uh so that <clears throat> i can just go back and pull out whatever sections I want to quote for my articles. So it's really useful for creating other content as well. I got you. So how do you choose what you want to read? You've mentioned you've got, you know, 240 books, which are summarized. I'm going to guess you will have read more than that, which haven't been summarized. And you seem to read at a pretty quick 
quick pace, how do you choose what it is that you're going to dedicate your time to? Uh, it's sort of just whatever I'm interested in. Or if it's made you think related, it's whatever Neil and I want to do an episode on. There's not that much science behind it, honestly. Got you. Because uh, I know that the biggest impediment to reading a lot will just be reading stuff that I don't want to read. Mm. Because if I get you know into a book that I don't that I'm not that interested in, then I'll just get stuck and like do other things instead. So uh, I just kind of go with whatever is interesting to me at the time and and read that. Yeah, it's bizarre that um, kind of inertia that occurs when you are reading a book that you don't want to read. I know that Naval and Joe Rogan on the podcast that they did recently spoke about the fact that neither of them actually finish books. I think Naval's like notorious for just picking up a book, reading a page, finding something he likes and then going down a rabbit hole on like Wikipedia and, and searching blogs for the rest of the night. Um, but for me personally, I find it's a bit of a, an open loop when I've got a book that, so uh, Thinking Fast and Slow is a perfect example. And it's like, it's so mm-hmm. long as well. It's a, it's a monster to get through. Um, I just, I've really struggled to get through that book and I keep on trying I keep on picking it up, keep on picking it up. And every time I do, my overall reading for the week goes down because I just, there's something like, I don't know whether it's because I don't want to be defeated um, and whether I just want to kind of grit my teeth and continue to read through it. But you, you're very correct. If there's listeners at home who are trying to develop a reading habit, uh, I have been and continue to at the moment over the the coming years. Uh, hopefully that will get more and more easy for me as it the, the trajectory is suggesting. But yeah, the getting bogged down in a book is a surefire way to make reading an awful lot harder. Yeah, and I think that people sweat too much early on about, uh, you know, reading good books or challenging books. But it's like get in the habit of just like reading anything first and then you can level up the difficulty as you go. Right. You don't want to be reading businessy books, right, like James Altucher trash for too long. But if you need to start there, like there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, and especially before before bed sometimes for me, if I do end up reading something that's too kind of go-getter and upward mobility uh, focused, I end up going to bed with my mind absolutely buzzing. So I think there's definitely a place in there for people to read, I don't know, like autobiographies or fiction or, you know, more narrative-based stuff, I guess, to, to kind of just give give your brain a little bit of a rest. Definitely. Yeah. Um, so tell us about Growth Machine. I'm super interested to hear about that. Yeah. So Growth Machine is a SEO focused content marketing agency. So we work with uh, e-commerce and tech companies to take over a decent portion of their blog and their content strategy to get them you know, ranked top of Google for everything related to their product and their customers interests. So well, you know, I think the best example of this is our work on our own site, Cup and Leaf, which is a e-commerce tea store. And then we've created the whole Cup and Leaf blog talking about tea and managed to get in the top spots on Google for like best green tea, best oolong tea, health benefits of jasmine tea, like all of those terms. And then that search traffic translates directly into sales that you're getting organically instead of having to buy ads on the terms. Yeah. So the organic versus paid debate is one that we continue to have on this podcast an awful lot. The two co-hosts are big uh, 
uh, proponents of paid f- fans of Sam Ovens and of uh, the guys behind ClickFunnels and uh, the that kind of, uh, I guess, how would you call it? The more transactional uh, approach to, to driving traffic. But I, I certainly agree. And I think that organic, if you can get it right, is such a powerful tool. Yeah, and it doesn't have to be an either or. Yeah. You know, they, they usually support each other. And organic is slower and more difficult and takes longer to kick in. But if you can get it right, you know, you can potentially be getting ongoing customers for almost free, right? Like yeah. it, it can work very, very well if you know how to target the right things, but it's much harder, especially in the early days to build a business on because again, it is so slow. Whereas you can just turn on ads tomorrow and <laughs> if you know what you're doing, start making, <laughs> start making sales within a week. Yeah. Start driving traffic. It is, it's, it's one of these things. I, I wonder what your thoughts are on this coming out from someone who does push, uh, to the optimization of SEO. My concern with the proliferation of paid media at the moment or paid advertising is that essentially anybody can do it. If it's just a formula, and Rory Sutherland was on the podcast talking about this as well, and he said that he thinks Silicon Valley sees everything as an optimization problem and that Mm -hmm. they presume that if you get the correct combination of numbers on a spreadsheet, the output will be a black figure at the bottom of your balance. Um, And... I don't know. For me, there has to be diminishing margins of return as more and more people find, like more and more people read Expert Secrets by Russell Brunson or whatever whatever their Bible of choice for online advertising is. That particular strategy will get rinsed and rinsed down to the point at which so many people are doing it that the market won't respond anymore. What What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, uh, maybe. I mean, ads... I think have always been here and always will be here and they will just change how they're being presented to us. Like most of the money now is going into Instagram ads instead of Facebook ads. Um, obviously it's still Facebook, but there's you know, people are getting better ROI on Instagram now because Facebook ads are kind of played out and maybe that will change over time. Like maybe more will move into Pinterest or somewhere else, but I don't think it's ever going to get so saturated that it no longer works. You just have to keep, getting better at it and there will probably always be interesting new areas to check out but i think it's just like as long as people are selling things online there's going to be ads and if you're good you're going to make a lot of money and if you're bad you're 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 going to lose a lot lot of money money. yeah i I totally totally agree um so going back to the books and the uh content that you've been consuming over the last few years some of the listeners may be thinking that I'm pretty interested in getting stuck in. Have you got a, a top five or so that you could run us through? It doesn't need to be of all time. It could just be what you've thought of recently or anything like that. But I think some recommendations might be cool, and then we could have a little discuss about each of the books, perhaps. Yeah, top books. Um, or most read. See, what do you keep going back to? Oh, I, I reread very rarely because I just take good enough notes the first time that I don't need to go reread it exactly Um, of course you do for the most part (laughs) so i i'm gonna i'm not gonna pick the best five per se i'm gonna try to pick a few that maybe haven't been talked about on here as much because i can make some guesses about what has probably come up before awesome um so peak by anders erickson robert pool 
is probably the best book on learning and skill acquisition. Uh, way, way more useful than any of the like hacky learning stuff like Tim Ferriss style books that I think are more popular. I think Peak is actually a legitimately useful uh, one for learning for somebody with a more long term mindset. Um, is that a prescriptive book or I haven't I haven't read it? Uh, it's somewhat prescriptive. I mean, the thing is, they're not trying to sell you that you're going to be able to like learn a language in 24 hours. <laughs> so they're much tempered in how they frame things. But it's very prescriptive if you know how to read and implement it. Got you. I've got um, Scott H. Young. Uh, I've got him on this week talking about ultra learning, which is his new book. And he references peak in that he references make it stick by Peter C. Brown, who's been on this podcast as well. And, uh, atomic habits as well, I suppose. But yeah, the kind of desire for people to learn how to learn, um, definitely identifies that most people don't know, which is bizarre, right? Considering almost everyone in the Western world is in full-time education for at least like 11 years or something. Yeah. Yeah, but it's still a uh, still a challenge. And I, I think the other thing, too, that people need to be careful about is that all of this, like, learning how to learn uh, skill acquisition stuff, a lot of it is sort of a get-rich-quick scheme in disguise. And How so? Like, the old... Well, because people think, like, oh, I could just, like, you know... Or, one, they think that the problem isn't that learning is hard and takes a while. It's that I'm, like, doing it incorrectly, mm-hmm. right? And so instead of just continuing to make progress in the way that they probably should, they look for hacks and they look for shortcuts and like they get obsessed over the whole 80, 20 nonsense and like think they need to over optimize their process instead of just like doing the work and getting good at the skill. Like skill acquisition is really simple. Like it's not complicated, but people overcomplicate it. Like one to sell stuff and two, because it's more fun to like, spend time trying to hack your learning than it is to do the boring (laughs) learning stuff right yeah like you feel super productive rereading um you know like an article on how to learn and you feel like you're making progress but it's like no you should probably just you know if you're trying to learn a language like you should be speaking to someone in that language and literally anything else you are doing is a waste of time right yeah 100 percent. the principle of the principle of directness yeah, yeah, and I think it's just like you got to be careful with all of the stuff that is trying to sell you that you can learn things like crazy quickly because nobody who's good at anything like learned it really quickly. And if you're trying to like find the 20% to get to 80%, well, anybody else can do that. So the 80% is really like 50% and it's not really <laughs> good enough for anything besides writing about in blog articles. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah, you are. You it are. looks super sexy. Yeah, you do. And it's, I think as well, have you listened to the Naval and Joe Rogan podcast yet? No, not yet. Oh, no, nah, you got to get on it, man. It is like, I don't usually sort of fanboy over podcast episodes, but that one was, was a real, like just mic drop after mic drop throughout the entire podcast. Really good. And in that Naval talks about the fact that people's desire to look clever is greater than their desire to be clever. And mm-hmm. I think that. Um, what you've alluded to there, which is someone wanting to know enough to have a simulacrum of intelligence. And I find it in myself, right? Like, you know, I want to be on this podcast or I'm, I'm going to speak to Robert Greene, New York Times bestseller, world renowned author. And I want to say stuff that makes me sound like I'm, 
uh, not a different species to him. Like I want to sound, right. I want to sound like you know oh, he's got so Chris has got some interesting stuff to say, but it, the lack of humbleness pulls you away from the actual thing that you're trying to do, which is just to understand stuff. Yeah, no, I think that's very true. Um, so yes, what what have we got next? So peak up first, and then peak is very good. Uh, I'll say endurance by alfred lansing is very good all right uh so that's the story of shackleton and his crew who were trying to do the first trans antarctic crossing and end up getting stuck in the ice right at the beginning of the trip and have to survive for i think like almost two years in antarctica with no additional supplies or anything two years and yeah (laughs) and everybody like everybody outside of them just assumed they were dead because they never made it to their check-ins yeah um and every single member of the crew survived uh the whole like expedition and rescue mission it's an absolutely insane book um so highly recommend that's probably like my favorite biography i've read it's really really incredible that's awesome um have you read uh it's gonna it's so man's search for meaning is one book i guess that kind of comes to mind with regards to that like Mm -hmm. turmoil and people going through things but uh the forgotten highlander or the last highlander i think it is by alistair no i haven't read that um so this man if you if you um it need a new autobiography style book to read i really highly recommend this one so this guy was a scottish uh, recruit in the Highlanders uh, regiment, World War II, uh, placed okay. placed overseas in Japan, and then when the Japanese took, uh, decided that they were going to invade and and actually enter the war, he was taken prisoner. He basically had dysentery for like four years straight. Worked on bridge over the River Kwai. Was left out in a hot tin box for two days with no food or water to basically cook in the sun. Um, yeah, man, it's like it's like man's search for meaning, but extreme. Then he gets uh, taken to a different. Uh, a completely different camp has to be hospitalized a number of times. They're not getting, not giving anyone any care gets put on one of these death ships, which is like basically a tin, a tin can floating out at sea. Then, then starts working, gets transferred somewhere else, gets starts working on a new bridge and gets hit by the blast of the bomb from Nagasaki and survives that as well. And then stays silent, stays silent for 40 years and it's kind of, I guess, like a memoir. It's also a call to arms to a call to account the Japanese government for the atrocities because there was the Germans were held to account, but I think I don't think the Japanese were so much. But as is evident by Alistair's book, there's some pretty big sort of scary things that went on. Um, but yeah, that huh. is like real. It's an easy read as well. It's very narrative based, but like if you ever want to have contrast in your life and just to think like, I'm so, I'm so fortunate to just have a drink whenever I want a drink and two legs that work and like bowels that stay inside of my body. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, um, it's a good, it's a good one. Sounds so, good. Yeah. Uh, so what's next? Okay. So that's two. Uh, let's see. Next I'll say, 
Sovereign Individual by James Dale Davidson and William Rees-Mogg. Uh, that's a really, really, really phenomenal books. Uh, it's a really, really phenomenal book. Uh, I think like it will change how you think about government and individual autonomy. So it and money and power and a lot of things it's i think when it came out it didn't get that much play but it's having a moment now because it basically predicted a lot of stuff that's going on in crypto and the crypto economy so it's really big in like the bitcoin fanboy space (laughs) um but it's like it's a legitimately fantastic book and you, you will I uh, I think think about government and individual sovereignty differently coming out of it. Um, the it's a little like dry and hard to read at times, so mm. you may want to listen to the made you think episode first, yeah. <laughs> just to see if it's like interesting before you try to force yourself through it. But yeah. it's very good. Got you. Again, thinking about going back to the Naval and Joe Rogan podcast, you can tell I've listened to it twice in the last uh, the last few days. It's all I've got in my mind. Yeah. But he's talking about um, the future of social media and how the uh, process for crypto, the decentralization of crypto, has paved uh, a way for future technologies to proof themselves against being taken down. And he talks about, he, he predicts that at some point in the future, you will have a decentralized social networks where it can't, there's no one site or there's no one host and it can't be taken down and it will be a little bit more like the Wild West and, and stuff like that. So I think people thinking forward to this sort of stuff to understand individual sovereignty. And obviously that's Jordan Peterson's whole shtick, right? And he's sold like millions of books off the back of that this year. Yeah, you know, I hope that's right, but I think that humans tend towards collectivization and monopoly and centralization, not decentralization. Like, I think that deep down people would prefer decentralized models for things. Uh, or, sorry, I think on the surface, people say they want decentralized models mm-hmm. for things, but the revealed preferences always trend towards centralized. Like, I'd be I'm kind of I'd be very surprised if we actually get the hyper decentralized world that a lot of the crypto community and it sounds like Naval are prophesizing Mm. because like you will inherently have disparities in power and any like collection of power is going to result in like centralization of control within <laughs> that power. Yeah. Right. And like it's a communism the, the idea problem that you would have again, right? a Yeah, the idea that you would have like a perfectly communistic distribution of power and responsibility is just like kind of ridiculous. And I mean, people talk about crypto as if it's this super decentralized currency, but like most of the power is controlled by like a few companies in China, right? Like if they wanted to turn off all of the mining rigs, like they could do that. And I'm sure that Bitcoin survive, but it's not like it's this perfectly distributed thing. There's still a collection of power and there will always be a way to get power. So I'm, I'm skeptical that we're going to have this amazing decentralized future. I think we're just going to change who holds power. Like we always have. Yeah. I I have to say, I think there's too much reptilian brain in a lot of humans for this, uh, 
idealistic future to occur. Um, in, in my opinion, I would agree with you. I wonder whether people deep down perhaps like the idea of that centralization because the way that they've grown up is with a trust in the institution. You know, you grow up and you have trust in school, you have trust in your teacher, you have trust in the education system that moves you on, you have trust in law enforcement, you have trust in government. And really, no matter how much, no matter how much of an anarchist people, uh, someone may claim to be, I think deep down we all would much prefer government to work the way that government's supposed to work and education to work the way that education's supposed to work. Um, I don't know whether that's because people don't have the ability to see outside of that box or whether big picture sort of blue sky thinking's just just pretty tough or something else. I don't know. Well, I think it's like, you know, Plato's Republic, right? The the ideal government is a philosopher king. I mean, democracies are messy and extremely slow and most people really shouldn't be making political decisions for other people. Right. Um, but it's like the best worst system, uh, and a, you know, a purely a super benevolent, hyper rational dictator would be a far superior form of government than like what we have in the States. But since, we can't guarantee that anybody you put in that position is going to be that like hyper rational, reasonable Mm. person. You need all of these other like checks and things. And so I feel like that's sort of what happens with the whole centralization, decentralization argument is you'll get these rapid swings in either direction where the internet started out super decentralized and kind of a free for all wild west. And then power started you know, coming into certain areas, right? Like Google, Facebook, whatnot. Uh, and now we're seeing the extremes of that and saying like, all right, this is too much. And so it's going to swing back <laughs> in the other direction. Maybe. And like, maybe we will get this, you know, internet 3.0 crypto net, whatever yeah. that people are asking for. But that too, I think will be temporary and something about that, you know, cause like, here's the thing with total decentralization is like stuff needs a plan, right? Like, you if you imagine like laying out a city or designing the streets by committee and just like completely ad hoc with no planning right? like it'd be a mess you want <laughs> a powerful body for certain things yeah um so it's i think that you know we'll maybe we'll swing towards decentralization and then that will be dissatisfying in its ways and we'll swing back towards you know concentrated power again like we're just always going to be in those kinds of cycles yeah i think so the grass always tends to be greener as well and people presume that the future is going to make some sort of improvement if they just make a drastic change which i don't know it doesn't seem to be the case you touched on something there about the benevolent single dictator thing and i always think about how crazy it is that i know that you, you're right, there's checks below Donald Trump or the the prime minister or whoever it might be, the head of any particular state. There are checks and there's people around they're culpable to and processes they need to follow. But at the end of the day, the person that presses the button that nukes another country is just a guy. And like that person is completely at the mercy of all of their biases and all of their uh, prejudices and ev- everything that they've got. And the fact that we've got 7 billion people on the planet at the mercy of that. Like, I know that it is the, you know, it would appear to be the system that is the best at the moment, but looking at it uh, totally objectively, it it makes me uh, laugh and also be terrified in the same sentence. 
Yeah, you know, I would have felt more that way three years ago. Mm. But I actually think that Trump has been really good for the like American sense of democracy, because if anybody like sits down and tries to make a list of all the ways their life is worse with Trump being president, it's going to be a very short list, right? Like I really can't come up with a few things that are the direct responsibility of like Trump policies that have affected me on an individual level. And like the country is still going pretty well, right? Like I, I would agree that international policy and st- or like international relations and things like that have taken a hit. But I think everybody was like so terrified of what would happen with this, you know, seemingly insane person being in power. <laughs> and the answer is like not much, right? Like the, the tariff stuff now kind of sucks because I mean, like we sell tea, right? And our tea prices went up 25% importing them to China. But like, these are all kind of like edge casey things right it's not like we got into some crazy nuclear war with north korea it's not like you know there are nazis marching in the street like i think some people legitimately thought might happen right like the president has actually remarkably little influence on our lives and that should be kind of refreshing for how much we allow ourselves to get wrapped up in the insanity of some of that political stuff (laughs) yeah you are right do you think that people are very quick to to personify these roles obviously their main actual problem was with donald trump's personality i think there was a uh nbc or maybe one of the more maybe like a, a vice news article or something a video that they did online where they went around before the election and they were showing particular uh campaign objectives or particular policies that was it to voters from the opposite side and saying this is what this is a, a Hillary policy blah 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 and they're going yeah yeah brilliant classic Hillary classic love it love it and then at the end they go yep. actually all of those are Donald Trump and you could see the cognitive dissonance occur <laughs> in people when they're like oh, I, 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 I like the policy but the put with the, the the NPC programming just like triggers so is that because yeah. we've got you know like the bachelor and and uh like pop idol equivalents and stuff like that, where everything's personified and it's all about the person's narrative and story. And that often can actually detract away from the objective measures. Uh, Yeah. I mean, I think that's part of it. I think too, like humans are inherently tribal and we need some tribe to feel a part of. And most, and also importantly, I think we need some tribe to be an enemy of. Right. Yeah. And if you, and I actually think that it's a useful exercise to think about, your like what tribes you choose to identify with and then which tribes you choose to like fight against you know intellectually or emotionally or like what will you allow yourself to be triggered by (laughs) is kind of a worthwhile exercise because if you don't pick what you're what's going to be like your enemy then your friends or your community or like whatever news you let through your filter is going to pick it for you um And like politics is just the easiest one, right? It's super easy to hang out with all of your liberal or conservative friends and like shit on the other team in the same way that, you know, you'll shit on the other like sports team and you're like nobody, almost nobody argue about politics has any impact in the political sphere at all, (laughs) right? Like everybody getting uppity about the news, like it doesn't affect your life. Like it's not going to change how you behave day to day. Like you're not going to go do anything about it. Like this thing that you're getting so pissed about, it's not going to like 
you're you're like you're not going to do anything. You're not going to run for office. You're not going to go like petition at the local courthouse or whatever to get something changed. You're just going to like bitch about it on Facebook. So yeah. it's like it's it's just a fun bonding thing more than anything, right? And it's a way to show that you're a member of the group because everyone's always trying to feel out what tribes all the other people around them are in. And a really easy way to show what tribe you're in is like how you feel about political stuff. Yeah. Right? Yeah, because it down, downstream think, from that, it suggests that there's more implications people can draw about your personality. I was speaking to Caleb yeah. Caleb Jones the other day, who's a massive non-monogamy advocate, and he said, you know, non, non-monogamy uh, leans left, lots of libertarian friends, but doesn't smoke weed, doesn't drink. Mm-hmm. And for his other friends, that's like what you don't smoke. Like They can't believe the fact that he doesn't smoke weed. Because it doesn't fit the profile, yeah. Which yeah. is 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 people hilarious. People aren't comfortable with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Again, like, I was talking to Robert Green. He was saying about how not uh, not allowing people to put you in a box and not allowing people to categorize you uh, sort of one dimensionally is one of the best things that you can do. Not only to hedge your personality, your interests in life but also just to come across as a bit more of an enigma and a bit more of a multi-layered, multi-faceted, interesting individual. I don't think anyone wants to look back in their life and feel like it was a, a trope or a, like a cliche. Oh, I, uh, my life was really good. I was a caricature of myself. Yeah. Well, and if you can tell anybody one or two of your political beliefs and they can accurately infer all of the other ones, then <laughs> you probably haven't thought about what you believe in very much right you've just sort of accepted like the package set of ideas that come with one group and you're running with them yeah right and i think like you know there's all of these there's a lot of really hot button issues that i think most people don't think about very hard like guns and abortion are the two big ones Mm -hmm. where if you actually sit down and think about them like they're really really tough uh like things to design policy around because they both require drawing sort of an arbitrary line in the sand that's yeah. not based in you know really anything beyond your emotions or your like philosophical religious background and i think people like to think that they're super cut and dry easy things but the only way you would think that is if again you hadn't thought about them very hard and you were just like <laughs> yeah. going off of what your group is supposed to believe. Yeah, I think um people often talk past each other with these issues as well, right? Like on the topic of gun control, one group is talking about school shootings and uh people who are on SSRIs and the other side is talking about an armed militia against a government, a tyrannical government. Or on the topic of abortion, one side is talking about protecting a woman's rights if she's been raped, and the other side is talking about late-term, you know, 20 weeks in uh, abortions with no no reason other than uh, personal choice. So the, the actual discussions aren't... The questions that each side are posing to each other aren't even the same one. They're talking from... I, I think they're actually... I think they're actually harder than that. I think that you can be a lot more generous to the other sides and both of those arguments, right? And I think that the most generous way to frame the gun control debate is like 
why or how can you say that a poor single mother living in the slums of Chicago is not allowed to defend herself, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like that to me seems insane if you're surrounded by people with guns and you want to tell these law-abiding citizens who are living in terrible areas that they can't have an equivalent weapon with which to defend themselves, mm-hmm. right? That seems crazy. Um, and then in the abortion case, it's not even, I think, about the late-term choice. Well, it's it's partly that one side is saying this is a choice debate, and so they're saying that anybody against abortion is against women having rights, which mm-hmm. is insane. And then the other side is saying this is a life discussion, and anybody who's pro-abortion is pro-murder, right? And that's also kind of like an insane framing. And so if both <laughs> sides continue to like talk past each other, it doesn't get anywhere. But until somebody sits down and they say like, you know, either at this date or at this line, a fetus becomes a human and then it's no longer okay to abort. That's the only way you can be okay with like abortion at some level. And like, this is something that I think about a lot. Like, I don't know where the rules on it should be. Mm. Like I'm very, I'm very pro choice, but I don't have like a good, I think backing up for that position. It just feels like emotionally right that the, the right to choose is more important than the philosophical discussion about when life begins. But I also recognize that like, I don't have a super solid backing for that. Right? I, I agree. Yeah. And I like, Having watched, yeah, it's, it's uh, tough. Having, having watched Ben Shapiro's uh, anti-abortion uh, debate videos on YouTube, I found myself putting myself on the other side of the fence, trying to put my point across to Ben, and finding that I was getting absolutely annihilated. Like I, I just, I yeah. didn't have an awful lot of comeback other than sort of her body, her choice, I guess. And yeah, this arbitrary line in the sand of when life begins in quotation marks. And unfortunately you can't even really talk about this. There's no room for nuance at all, is there? Yeah, no, because the minute you say that there could be a reasonable argument for the other side, you're like labeled as, you know, a terrible person. It doesn't really matter which side you're doing that to, right? Like (laughs) you've got a group of super liberal people and you say like, well, actually I can see why somebody would think that life begins at conception without religion. Like the immediate reaction is that like, Oh, you don't think women should have rights. Right. And like, that's such an insane mischaracterization of what someone's trying to say that it closes the door to any discussion. Yeah. And you know, on the same side, if you like tell a super conservative group, they're like, Oh, well I actually think that, you know, they're, is some reasonable allowance for, you know, abortion in certain cases, like the same thing's going to happen, right? Like then you're obviously a murderer who wants to like kill babies and that's not fair either. (laughs) Like we've just sort of lost the ability, I think, to talk about these things uh, or to risk talking about them in polite discussion. It's like just not worth it anymore. So we talk about Game of Thrones. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, we do. And then people just riff on Game of Thrones and they say that the most recent season of that was shit. Um, So, final two books. Nat, we'll do Quick Fire. Quick Fire. Uh, Final two books. Uh, I would say... Try to find a good one here. Um, With 240 to choose from, I imagine that's probably not actually that easy of a choice. Yeah, yeah. Does it feel like having to pick one of of your favorite children? Like, I've got yeah. to pick my favorite kid here. Well, if uh, so, I've got all of my notes ordered by rating up on my site. So if you go to like nataliasoncom slash notes, you can see them all. But I'll throw out 
Godel Escher Bach is amazing. What it's, is that, sorry? It's a Godel Escher Bach. Okay. By Douglas Hofstadter. He was one of like the early pi- pioneers in terms of thought in the AI space. And it's it's one of the most intellectually challenging books I think I've ever read. Wow. Uh, the writing the writing is very easy, right? It's not difficultly written, but it requires like grasping and trying to work with ideas from like math, physics, logic, biology, and also these like tricky philosophical ideas about what is a brain, what is a mind, like is there an eye, all of that. Wow. Uh, and it's written in this extremely beautiful style that merges uh, artwork by M.C. Escher, uh, narrative little fables in the style of like Lewis Carroll, and then more uh, more like descriptive nonfiction writing that brings it all together. It's a very cool book. There's really no other book quite like it. That's awesome. That sounds really, really cool. Would you recommend, is Kindle sufficient for that, or does it need to be the physical copy? think there is a kindle version uh and if there is i wouldn't recommend it i would definitely read the physical version so that you get all of the art laid out properly so because like there's uh so a lot of the ideas in it come back to this idea of like strange loops and uh recursive relationships between ideas or functions in a computer things like that and so some of the narratives are themselves recursive and nested in these odd ways that require you to see the physical layout in the book to totally get what's going on. I think on a Kindle would be really hard. Yeah, I got you. And then last one I'll throw out would be Denial of Death by Ernest Becker. That's another super interesting one. It's basically just about what it sounds like that almost everything we do is about or is in some way related to our uncomfortableness with death and trying to create you know these pyramids these sculptures that will outlast us at our in our in our feeble attempts at immortality so uh, i was speaking to carl cedarstrom do you know carl he uh, was the guy Nuts. who guy who did uh, he optimized one area of his life every month for a year he basically immersed himself in like the life hacking world um, and he optimized one, one month was sex, one month was money, one month was productivity, one month was like relationships or fitness or whatever it might be. And, um, his sequel book, which was about happiness. And he said he was pretty much certain the overarching principle between both books was that the reason people are trying to optimize their life so hard and the reason that people are searching for happiness is in an effort to stave off their thoughts about death. And it sounds, it's such a morbid, like, bottom line to put to a book. But I do think that, yeah. I do think that our fear of the end drives so much of what people do. I mean, obviously, like, that maximizes evolutionary fitness, right? Like, being afraid of death is, is generally over the, uh, the course of our evolution, a pretty good thing to have. Um, right. <laughs> but now in a, a world of abundance, it leads to some pretty, uh, some odd, um, some odd thought loops occurring. Yeah, seriously. For sure. But that's a good one for ruminating on that thought. So recommend awesome. it as well. Nat, uh, I, I can't thank you enough, man. It's been awesome. If if you will... Uh, yeah, give it's it, been a lot of fun. Give us the time in the future. Maybe we can get you back on, do another top five or, or something like that. As always, the links to everything that we've spoken about today will be in the show notes below. I'll also make sure that I add every book that I can find from that Nat's gone through today and I'll put it on our Amazon shop front. Just follow the link and you can support the podcast at no extra cost to yourself through that. Also, links to 
Made You Think Podcast, Growth Machine, and Nat's socials will be down below as well. So make sure that you go and check him out. I highly recommend Made You Think. It's a fantastic podcast. Nat, today's been sick, man. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks, Chris. We'll talk more soon.